I'm Dawn Ennis. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. And you're in the Thanksgiving edition of the Transporter Room. Carly, I think it's a great opportunity for us to sit back and think about all the wonderful things that we've had, all the things that we're grateful for in 2020. Well, first off, I'm thankful that this podcast exists. And this has been a wonderful thing to be a part of. And it's been wonderful to be a part of the Outsports family. And I would be remiss not to say I'm thankful for you for for snatching me up and bringing me on this ride. And I'm thankful for the wonderful people we've met. I'm thankful for the Megan Youngrens and the Kate Weatherleys and the Charlie Martins. And, and, and the Caroline Lates, who was, who was on here most recently. And the Chris Mosiers and so many. Oh, Strangio, yeah, Alex oh, Weaver, yes. D. Gill, Sid Ziegler. So many people who have made this show. Now we're 48 episodes in for this year alone, but this is the 58th episode of the Transporter Room. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for you being my partner mm -hmm. in crime. I'm thankful for you being the voice that challenges me and makes me better at what I do. And most of all, I'm grateful for your writing and for your amazing storytelling. Well, and I'm grateful for your leadership of our entire Outsports family being our managing editor. And it's not, I know it's not easy because you know, writers can be divas just like you are. <laughs> no, uh, nobody can be a diva just like me. I am, <laughs> I am the diva of the divas. <laughs> but I'm, all, I'm thankful, especially for our listeners. For so many people who have who have listened, who have sent, who have sent tweets for us, who've sent notes, who've sent comments, even the criticisms. I'm thankful for for them because we've done something special. We've out sports for 21 years has given voice to sports from the point of view of our rainbow family. And I am proud of the fact that I'm giving a voice to sports from a from a trans point of view, from trans people, about trans athletes oftentimes, and giving that voice and that forum and that space to discuss things from our point of view. And it's it's a very special thing for me. And it's one of the proudest things I've been a part of in a career in this craft that's more than a quarter century long. And whether there be non-binary people or trans people or cisgender people, all of our guests have added something that we're very proud to share with you. We have seven special guests that we are going to highlight in the minutes ahead, and we invite you to stick with us on the other side of this commercial. We'll be right back in the Transporter Room. We're back in the transporter room. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, along with Don Ennis. Hello. And like I said, this is our Thanksgiving special where we're going to look at seven special guests and also later in the show, a television show that, in a sense, gave us our name. <laughs> we're going to look at Star Trek past, present, future, and what we're thankful for from that particular subgenre. But first off, we're going to go to Big Sky Country, Idaho. And there's a fight brewing right there. And that fight centers around one college freshman who just wants to toe the starting line for her college and wear the blue and orange of Boise State on her chest and compete. 
Here's an excerpt from our interview with Lindsay Haycox. I've gone to the Capitol building multiple times as part of a protest group. And then I just went to watch what was going on in the Senate in the gallery. And the more I went, the more I realized how much this is going to impact me if it passes. It's not just, oh, I don't get to run. It's setting the way for more anti-trans discrimination laws. And I had to do my part. I was going to college in Boise State. This is a great city of Boise, but the whole state needs to change. And that's why I needed to jump into it. I couldn't let the state set the rules for me. And this is not something that should happen in anywhere in the United States, but I happen to live in Idaho, the one state that passed the law among all the states that tried to. And that's when I realized this is the perfect opportunity for me to really step into my role as an activist. I have every confidence that Lindsay and the ACLU are going to triumph. I think that the change administrations will mean that the federal government will get its finger off the scale and that the judge hopefully will decide in favor of trans athletes in Idaho. We just have to give it time. Let's hope. I'd agree. But one thing is there are still other people trying to put their thumb on the scale. 14 oh, states have, have yeah. filed briefs saying that we agree with Idaho. Of course, the outgoing administration. I mean, we still have to deal with them for a few more weeks. And the Alliance Defending Freedom. And of course, there's the Alliance Defending, air quotes, freedom. <laughs> wonder whose freedom they're defending. They are going to, I mean, they're going to put their thumbs on the scale as much as we can. All we can do is continue to tell the stories, put the facts out there, but a lot of love to a legal team that's not going to stop. And of course, again, to Lindsay, anytime you're putting a young person in that warhead, it's difficult. And she's willing to put her, put herself on the line for it. Much respect, much respect. I think that one of the groups we've spoken to, at least in terms of visible strength, has got to be Mitch Harrison from the Titan Games, a 31-year-old security guard, former college basketball star. He's from Alaska, but he was on fire, both on TV and in the transporter room. Here's an excerpt of our interview with Mitch Harrison. There's absolutely uh, an aspect of vulnerability to all of this. I mean, I have felt very grateful to be in a position to, to to take this on, to take this this big of a stage on. Um, but of course, I, I know that going into this, I, I could try and compare myself to everyone else who is about, who's either watching their episode or about to watch their episode. And, you know, I, I could, I could, I think I can safely assume that for them, it's a little bit safer. You know, they're just watching themselves be themselves out competing. This is, and the focus is really about them being an athlete and, and competing on a, athletic show where, you know, I'm coming into it with that same, you know, <laughs> that's that into the same atmosphere, but there's this compounded into it where there's a level of a, a, a huge level of vulnerability that I was trying to take on as well. So, so many more emotions, um, hard to watch all in all, like it's hard to watch myself lose because I'm competitive. It's hard to watch myself tell this story and know that there's probably millions of people watching it. 
Um, there's people even in my life today that didn't know <laughs> and now know. And it's like, well, th- this is, this is beyond floodgates. <laughs> so wow. it, yeah, it was, it was definitely wow. still, still difficult, but I know at the end of the day, it's going to be, it's going to be rewarding. So this is, that's what I'm hanging on to throughout the experience. If I could ask, I've had members of my family, um, God, it's been six years, um, no, seven years since I came out, who still don't look at me the same way or won't talk to me or you know, they disowned me. After your show Monday night, were any minds changed on people who you've lost who might have seen the new you and, and realized, just as you said, they're missing out? <laughs> Yeah, um, I wish I could say that it it has. Um, I know at this point it has not. And to be honest, it's I know it's a really tough subject, um, yeah. and it'll it it'll always uh, bring its own level of pain. But you know, even through all of this, even if they watch, um, you know, I I honestly don't expect minds to be changed. This is just kind of uh, how, how I know things to be as they are right now. And it's really unfortunate, but I think, I think one thing that I would love to share in terms of the message I have when it comes to this kind of topic is, you know, I, it's really hard. I, I miss these, you know, family and friends that I've lost. Um, it's always hard to, to accept the fact that they don't accept me, but I think it's important to know that, you know, I, if I want at some point, to hopefully receive that unconditional love from them, I also have to give it. And so I have to be in a position to, to say to them, you know, I love you and I accept that this is your decision. I accept that you believe differently. You have a different perception on this because I know that I, 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 I don't think it's fair for me to ask the same from you if I can't give it. And so uh, it's been a difficult uh, road and journey to kind of get to that place because it is painful, but I think it allows me to be so much more at peace with the situation and and to always remain open in a loving place and in a positive place so that if they ever do change their mind, that I can embrace them and, and let them know that I, I don't hold this against you. I don't hold that bitterness or a grudge in my heart because if I do, it's just going to be reciprocated back to me. And so you know, that's the place that I continuously work to stay in mentally and emotionally, even spiritually. Uh, and I, I hope that some way, somehow they'll know that and understand that, that I, I accept them and I love them no matter what. And it's, it's a sad situation, but, um, you know, hopefully something like this, hopefully they do watch and, and hopefully over time it, it does soften them and, and bring them around to embracing me just as much as I'm ready to embrace them. So it's tough and I'm sorry for your situation as well. And I'm sorry for everyone that goes through it because it's probably one of the most painful things somebody can go through. And uh, if, if I could share any message on that, that would be something that I would love for people to, to maybe open their hearts to as well. Even though it's hard, it's easier said than done. That's for sure. <laughs> Don, we have not heard the last of this man. I'll say that right now. We've not heard the last of him. Mitch is going to be a factor going forward in sport and in inclusion. I see that coming for, for him. 
I'll put it this way. The best, the best thing about that show. I remember watching it that night, even, even though fell short was, was the moment he had afterwards with the rock on the show. And you could tell he earned the rocks respect. He earned that respect. Certainly earned mine. And And again, we've not heard the last of this man. When we interviewed Alice Soper, your headline just said it all. As a player and a pundit, Alice Soper is a hard charger. <laughs> what an amazing woman. All the way from New Zealand to the transporter room. What did you think of Alice Soper, Carly? When I first read the story, I'll tell you, I want to give a little bit of background of how we got Alice Soper on the show. I first read about the it was about the the head of New Zealand rugby was talking about the world, the whole world rugby controversy. And one of the people that struck me was Alice Soper was also interviewed. And she did this interview on a morning show for, for Radio New Zealand. And this person was so passionate. And and this is now and this is a, a cisgender person, mind you, saying it out there, saying it out there, saying that trans women belong in our sport. This why is this even an issue? What is world rugby thinking? And just putting it out there straight. And then I realized this person's on Twitter. So I had to reach out to them. And and she just and exactly, she just runs it straight at you as a player and as a pundit. She just come, she just comes with it. There's no BS from this person. And that's what attracted us to what I think was one of our best interviews of our entire run in the transporter room. If you go down to any club game any weekend, you've got a girl that probably weighs about 55 kgs on the same pitch with someone that may, may weigh 120. Now, I'm sorry, I'm saying that in kilograms because in New Zealand, uh, that's that's how we, we base our measurements. But the point being that we've got people that are two, three times the size of each other running at each other. And there is no, in any of the women's rugby that I've ever played, we've had no consideration for weight grading. They have that in men's rugby. So they have under 85 kgs rugby here. They have Colts rugby, which is for young men. And then they have uh, senior and then premiership rugby. Within women's rugby, we have open grade. So we have all athletes playing together. So if we're concerned about the impact in terms of the player welfare, why aren't we looking at that? They've acknowledged that that is a thing that needs to be done for men. So why haven't they looked at that for women? So before we go and scapegoat a minority within our sport, why aren't we looking at doing some pretty basic things in terms of making our player welfare you know, more secure? And what I'd also say is, I'm, yeah, I'm a pretty staunch advocate for women's rugby in general. And I'm currently working with our union around bringing some basic things in place to make our sport more inclusive and more safe for women to participate. Because it's not just on the field that we have the issue. The biggest issue for us is still off field, where there's still a lot of people that don't think that I should be playing. They don't think that women should be playing full stop because they're worried about how feeble we are. So I think that my issue with this and with all of the argument around it is I think that it allows men and the patriarchy to tie this to their underlying assumption that all men are stronger than all women. And that is just patently false. And it pisses me off when people say this because it's not true. I could go out of the office right now and I could pull in one of my colleagues that would be smaller than me and I'd say, run it straight boy. And he wouldn't want to but he's a man, <laughs> a biological man, and I'm a biological woman, so apparently he's much more high risk to me. It's just not true. So I'm just, I refuse to accept 
that I am because of my biological gender. I, I refuse to accept that I'm weaker than everybody else. It's just not true. It's misogyny, isn't it? It is. It is. And it's, it's allowing, like I say, like the thing is, the reality is the powers that be in art sport, there is still a lot of attitude within our game, which says that, you know, women need to be protected because these poor wee women doing this thing, we're not sure about them. We've got to wrap them up. And so the, the, when people come to them with the science, they get to hold on to that misogynist view because the science backs it up that oh, all women are feeble and need to be protected. We do not. And I thought, hey, maybe I was a little bit off base with this. I do hate that I do get wheeled out from time to time to be women's rugby's view because I'm just one player. And to be honest with you, I'm not necessarily representative where I'm from. I'm a, I'm a Pākehā, so I'm a white girl, right? And when it comes to um, my community, <laughs> rugby community here in Wellington, like we're mainly Pacifica. So it's mainly Samoan, Tongan, Fijian, and some Maori players, I'm usually the only one that's the Pākehā there. So I'm, I'm conscious that I'm not really reflective of what women's rugby looks like in New Zealand. But I thought maybe I was way off base. I went to training on Wednesday and I, a couple of my friends, you know, they're a bit more conservative. There's a lot of Christianity within our sport as well. And they were saying, to, I was saying to me, hey, you know, oh, we liked what you said on that the other day. My other mate came over and said, oh, what was that? And I said, oh, they're trying to ban trans women from playing. And they said, why would they do that? I said, I don't know. And then we just played, you know, so nobody cares. There's all these people that are very concerned at the top for us, but on the ground, we're just playing the game. We deal with it when someone comes to our game and wants to play with us. We'll deal with it like any new player wants to come in. We'll make sure that we train them how to fall correctly, how to tackle correctly, how to look after themselves on the field, and then we'll deal with it then. Don't worry about making rules for us that we don't need. What hmm. message would you have for young LGBTQ athletes out there who are coming onto the pitch, trying to come into their own and just trying to come out, be athletes and just be young. Yeah, look, I think it was interesting. I was, I was talking to just my friend this morning and we were talking about how sometimes we have a, a barrier, I think, around not wanting to be a stereotype, particularly as a female athlete, right? As a cis female athlete, we're like, oh, of course, you're a rugby player and so you're queer. Um, and I think it's that whole thing of like, nobody really cares um, <laughs> it's, it's like the you're gonna you're gonna tell yourself a whole bunch of stories uh, and and have a whole bunch of stuff that you're gonna be worried about, but people don't really care. And and the main thing that everybody has said to me is like, are you happy? And if you're happy, then that's cool. So just go for that, eh? And I think apart from that, like there are so many of us, like we're everywhere, mate. And as soon as it's, it's kind of like a secret handshake, as soon as you're out and that's what you say, a signal has gone out and everyone else finds you. So there's, there's a huge community of us out here. So nobody cares, just be happy. You'll be all good, mate, in the end. That's so, awesome. Let me make sure I got that right. You got a, there's a signal? Apparently. <laughs> there's I a sig not. No, 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 as a person who is also, who is also trans and queer, that's good to know yeah. that there's a signal. There's hope for me yet. Well, look, I mean, I, I seem to be putting out that signal already without having noticed. Um, but now that I've, I've switched on to it, I say sorry to all those girls that slid into my DMs all those years and I just thought you were being friendly. I didn't realize. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Well, maybe it's the haircut. I don't know. Have you I ever been? So. I think so. I, you know, to be honest with you, and I think like, look, that's another thing too, I would just say, like, if you're like me and someone who like, outwardly reads in this way it's a lot easier i think in terms of the switch because people are like oh well this makes more sense they're more comfortable with me now because it's more aligned i think people were more confused and uncomfortable when i was with my old partners whereas now they're like oh yeah like we thought 
Whereas I know if you're more feminine, that can be difficult. Um, and like, I'm conscious of that with my partner. Like if we're out, she's always a little bit more anxious about people looking at us or I'm like, ah. Um, <laughs> but that's because like she has almost like a, it's only when she's with me that it becomes more obvious, right? That, that that's, she's also queer. Um, and so that can be, I know is another layer of difficulty. So yeah, if you're not like me and, and don't have the haircut and, and you know, can camouflage yourself, like that can be a difficulty too. Like you're having to constantly come out. Whereas my, my self does that for me. <laughs> well, let me ask, has it, have you ever been mistaken for either a man or for someone trans? Mm -hmm. uh, I've never been mistaken for um, being someone trans, but I'm often um, misgendered, like it, just in like little ways. Um, like, you know, when someone's coming across the forecourt at the petrol station, they'll say, hey, sir. And then I'll be like, yeah, um, and and look, I'm I'm not particularly bothered by it. It's a really interesting thing, to be honest with you. Like, it was probably more of a, I I let myself not wear dresses uh, back in like 2016. I think was the last time I wore a dress, and I let myself cut my hair, and that was a lot more like that took a lot more emotionally than coming out did, and I think that that's because that was the beginning steps of me being more authentically myself and I think about when I was younger and the ways that I was bullied like they couldn't tell me like oh and this goes back to our original argument right around how people view female athletes they could never tell me like you throw like a girl because I threw better than <laughs> so they used to always tell me oh Alice you're such a man and so that was the way that I would be like bullied a lot when I was younger. You're such a man. And because you're a man, you obviously like women, so you're so gay, right? So this was the things that people would tell me all the time when I was young. And I think that's also like where I kind of put up the, no, I'm not, because I could have successful relationships with men. And so I was like, that's, that's not me and put up a real no on all of that. So it's taken a lot to be unpicking that. And I think back when I, you know, cut my hair, because I went from here from about here to basically this. Um, wow. It was like, okay. And that was pretty, sh like, everyone was like, so you gay now? Like, that was the thing. They were like, you're coming out now, right? And I was like, no, no, just my hair, which wasn't true. But at the time. <laughs> same here. Same here when I got an earring. When I first got my first earring, everyone yeah. was like, you're in your 40s and you're married with kids. Why are you wearing yeah. an earring? Are you, are you mm -hmm. coming out? And I was like, of course I am, but I'm not going to tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing though, right? If we go back to that advice for young people, I think it's like, allow yourself the little bits to make yourself feel safe. And so like, as much as I laugh about like, what was I up to, mate? Like, obviously, but like, I think at that time it was what I could handle. So at that sure. time, what I could handle was what was more important to me was being myself and presenting physically as myself in the world. So that was short hair and shirts. That's what, how I feel. I got sick of basically give, dressing up my boyfriends and them getting compliments for my outfits. I was like, no, I, I'd, I'd wear it better. So I'm going to do that now. So stuff you guys. This is well, my Speaking shirt. of clothes, I, I have to, I've never asked a guest to undress, but can you roll up the sleeve a little bit? Show well, us I'll the try. tattoo. Could we see this tattoo? This will be a first for the transporter room. We usually don't have people bare their skin. Uh, 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 it's too tight on the biceps. This is the problem. I see a little bit. There it is. There you go. It's in there. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Was wearing the wrong one. So it says scrums. Oh, I love it. Um, which is the, the, the pushy part in rugby, which I no, like. You are <laughs> truly a rugger if you love scrums. <laughs> yeah. I try I to avoid those. <laughs> well, here's a, here's a question from the non-rugby player in the group or non-rugby <laughs> fan. I mean, I, I've seen rugby. Why is it they wear so little body protection? 
Oh, because this is actually something I think that keeps our sports safer. Um, Because sometimes I think this is an issue in in like uh, American football is because you have pads and stuff on, they like will lead with head in terms of tackling and things. And that's the worst thing you can do in terms of injury. Because what's actually in terms of concussions, it's not the, the, the knock on the head, it's the rattle around of your brain inside your skull, right? And so if you're wearing a helmet, that's not actually going to help with that rattle. And so sometimes I think that the pads actually make people act in more dangerous ways because it doesn't, the, the, the hurt of a knock on a shoulder and a knock on a head brings in an inherent natural protection of oneself that is actually required. So all we have in terms of protective gear is a mouth guard. Um, so we like, so you yeah, put something over your teeth, uh, the little bit of rubber, it helps a little bit with like impact absorption, but also just keeps your teeth nice, which is nice because my mom paid a lot of money for these. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think personally that the, the lack of gear is actually a good thing. Um, because I think if I was wearing, it's like when I, I, I played when I was at uh, high school, I played hockey and I played in the goal and I'd wear all the gear and then I'd just like throw myself at people because I had all this crazy gear on. Uh, whereas I wouldn't, I would be more <laughs> like, if I wasn't wearing a whole bunch of kit. Well, what you lack in gear, you gain in mud. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, now that's the interesting thing. In American football now, they're teaching rugby tackling. Yeah. That's what they're teaching now because it's safer because it's true. I would tell, I have a, I had a college roommate who was, who was from a Commonwealth country and played rugby. And he would say, and he would say, Oh, you American football, American football players are puffs. They're puffs. I was like, okay, come on an American football pitch, wear that full protective clothing. It is true. Cause I remember yeah. playing football in high school. Oh, I used to, I used to become a human missile playing rugby in university uh no <laughs> i'd be looking for no i'm gonna i dive at ankles as much as possible like i said if i had to meet you on a pitch i'm not running it straight at you no <laughs> <laughs> no that, that's the thing like it, it's uh we, we yeah, we've had to learn how to do it safe um and that's the important the important part with any any player is teaching that but like learning how to fall is a big part of of learning how to play uh, rugby because you instinctively will put out hands and wrists and that's when you break them so you have to learn how to kind of tuck and fall all the time um which you know it takes some time but you get there and i have a feeling that we're going to hear from alice possibly in an elected office well if nothing else she she's got quite a connection because Alice Soper was a field operative for for the Labour Party in New Zealand and helped yield perhaps help yield the rise of perhaps the most famous New Zealander in the world right now. And by the way, Jacinda Ardern got reelected a couple months ago. So I have a feeling that the young Prime Minister of New Zealand is going to be around for a minute. And who knows? Maybe Alice Soper may be in a future cabinet or in a future parliament alongside PM Ardern. We can only hope. Now, I think that of all the sports writers we've interviewed, and no disrespect to our own team here at OutSports, my favorite remains Katie Barnes. They have a perspective and a, a drive that I just fall in love with, and their writing makes me want to be a better writer. In my mind, they've done two of the most important pieces of journalism in the last year. Of course, their story summing up the the entire Connecticut 
transgender high school student athlete controversy over the summer, but also being the only reporter in a national outlet to have the in-depth story of how Maya Moore took on our criminal justice system in this country and won. Here is ESPNW's Katie Barnes. I guess I'll talk about the Maya Moore story first. Um, you know, that piece was a labor of love. Um, and it was really challenging. Um, you know, I spent 10 months uh, following Maya and going to Missouri um, and, like, just following that court case. And I think one of the hardest things about it um, as a writer was just it, all of the emotion. Uh, it was an extremely emotional time. Um, for Maya and for uh, the people around her. Um, and then, frankly, you know, the piece, as I kept reporting it, ended up turning into a write-around. Um, I don't, like, unless, like, you really read between the lines, and I'm actually very proud of this, I don't think it reads as a write-around, uh, but I only asked Maya about four questions for that piece. I was not granted an interview at all. Um, and so over the course of 10 months, I asked her four questions. And um, that made it, a unique challenge in terms of not only did I need to be familiar with what I was seeing as a reporter, um, but in order to fill the gaps in the reporting with Maya's voice, and so it didn't feel like she was absent from the piece, um, I needed to be familiar with everything that she said. And so for 10 years, it was 10 years, excuse me, for 10 months, um, I pretty much just lived and breathed Maya Moore. And uh, that can also be really tiring. Um, and, of course, not nearly as tiring as the battle that she faced and that she waged in order to get Johnson out of prison. Um, so, you know, I'm certainly not going to say, what was me. Um, but, you know, the task of reporting it, uh, instead of getting easier over time, I think it actually got much harder. Um, but the joy in terms of publishing it and seeing it resonate and being able to amplify a story that I think is one of the most important stories uh, of the year uh, was really rewarding. Um, because one of the things that I actually found to be flabbergasting was I was the only member of the national media that was in those courtrooms. Um, and there was only one other time, really, that there was even local media there. Like, I was just not challenged in terms of uh, people going to the place where these conversations were happening and reporting around Maya. Um, and I actually thought that was a bit of a travesty. Um, if, this, if she were Steph Curry, that wouldn't have been the case. Uh, everybody would have been wanting the story. Everybody would be crowding those courtrooms. And she would have received a, just an astronomically uh, higher level of media attention and coverage for what she did. Um, and she deserves that. Um, and so to deliver a piece of that in the form of, you know, a really big, long-form article that got a lot of attention, um, you know, I, I felt as a person who cares about amplifying uh, narratives and stories about women, um, I felt a lot of joy around that part of it. Um, and it was actually interesting because since almost all of the reporting was done, like I came back from Missouri on March 10th, right before the world kind of stopped. And so the reporting itself uh, for the piece was done before, like well before, um, you know, publishing, of course, in June. But it wasn't really affected by the pandemic. Um, it kind of, I got it in right under the wire. Um, and with, you know, the Title IX story, 
uh, for me, you know, uh, writing about transgender athletes, especially at the high school level, is something that I really um, focus on. Um, and I had, I was lucky enough uh, to go to the state championships in February, and so I could get some scene. But then the pandemic really actually uh, limited what I was able to do with that piece. Um, that piece was uh, supposed to be much more in depth. I really, I honestly really thought I was going to end up um, filing like a 10,000 word draft after I got to do everything I wanted to do with it. So I was really disappointed that I didn't get to report it the way that I wanted to because of, um, because of COVID really. Um, but then, you know, being able to sort of piece together these things and really, you know, fall upon my own sourcing and um, the knowledge that I have about Andrea and Terry and what's been happening in Connecticut. Um, I published my first piece about Andrea in uh, June of 2018, late May of 2018. And I just really never stopped reporting it. Um, and so I've really lived and breathed uh, what's happened in Connecticut um, over the course of these last, like, four years. And it's ongoing. I'm working on a book about a similar topic. And so I'm just always thinking about Connecticut. And I think that allowed me to get that piece out um, in a way that I was really proud of. Um, even though the pandemic really disrupted my ability to report it. I, I agree. And it's debilitating how, you know, the COVID-19 has basically um, put handcuffs around us in terms of how we do our jobs. Um, I, I would say that the three of us are very lucky to have um, been able to talk to Andrea and Terry. Uh, Terry's sort of fallen off the radar lately um, after high school. Andrea and I still talk, and I know she's decided to not pursue athletics in college, but I still hope for Terry that there's some future for her because what an athlete they both are. I wanted to ask you about another kind of athlete you write about. You write about um, the UFC a lot. You write about um, uh, Amanda Nunez in your June story. And, you know, I've had a challenge personally with Amanda because as impressed as I am at her, uh, being out and lesbian and being a champion, there's a lot of transphobia there. And it's not just limited to her. It's pretty much embedded. And I was wondering what you think about reporting on a sport where transphobia sort of like is part and parcel of, of, of uh, everyday um, competition. Yeah, you know, I haven't talked to Amanda specifically about um, trans athletes. I think that, and this goes back to what I said about why I'm committed to writing stories about trans folks in sports, is that a lot of folks think that the science is somewhere that it's not. Um, and there's a lot that still needs to be known. And I think when we talk about transgender athletes, it gets particularly complicated in combat sports. Sticking with Connecticut, since ESPN, of course, is headquartered in Bristol, Connecticut, I have been fortunate enough to meet and attend Connecticut's son basketball coach Kurt Miller's games. This year, of course, they were in the wobble. I didn't get to go to any games. But Kurt is just a sweetheart, and he participated in a phone interview with us so that we could bring what it was like to be in the wobble to all of our listeners. Here's Kurt Miller. Uh, well, you and I have talked about before about being a trailblazer and uh, – and LGBT coaching, and you just tweeted about it the other day when you were talking about the, the sneakers you and I both share, the Be True sneakers, and uh, how it's 
it's just so sad that you're still the only one. Yeah, really sad. Really sad. Why don't we start there? I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to get a, a a personal perspective on what it's like to be all alone in your leadership role. Yeah, certainly, Don. Um, I once was uh, a coach, like many across the country, in a team sport and in in basketball in general. That uh, wow, I got comfortable being out, and I had a longtime partner at the time, and we were raising children, and had enough success that I felt comfortable being out. I was still only out in my collegiate kind of bubble, um, my administration, with my coaching staffs, with my players. Um, in the women's basketball bubble around the country, but really wasn't um, comfortable being uh, a trailblazer or someone that uh, was looked at as a role model. And, and I, I regretted it. I, there was years went by and I knew I didn't have anyone when I was young looking up to um, as a role model. And so I, I've really come to a point in my life that I want to get back to that young generation, that young gay male that wants to chase a career in sports, be it a coach, be it an athlete, be it a front office uh, general manager. I just, I want, I want to be able to give back to that next generation that I want people to chase their dreams and not fear uh, being gay or, or uh, it's happened to stay in the closet uh, for advancement. But this pandemic really has brought it to life, Don. Um, I've been reached out by so many in the profession even um, a ton of men's coaches in the men's game at all levels um, that are still uncomfortable coming out. There's still a homophobic fear in the locker room. Uh, they worry as an assistant coach, would they let down their head coach? Could they recruit successfully? Um, and they look around and I'm one of only 774 jobs at the highest levels in both men's and women's basketball. I am the only gay male head coach so I understand some of that fear, but it's time to be more vocal, um, visible, uh, having representation, visibility, I think is really, really important um, because there's still so many closeted men in the sport of men's basketball, women's basketball, that just fear advancement. They fear, is it really uh, a culture that they can be hired at? So. Uh, I'm trying to really be true myself, live authentically, and and have a visible presence for this next generation of coaches. Would you say that because there are so many out women coaches, that it's specific to the male experience? You know, certainly uh, there's still an element. Um, you know, this is one of the areas that I've been a little bit more outspoken to. If we really believe that we are champion of young women, and we are empowering women um, as coaches in the women's basketball uh, landscape, then I think you should champion and, and empower them in all areas. And I would love for more legendary coaches in our game, legendary coaches in our game that are definitely a, a lesbian um, and maybe only out to their teams or like myself for a long time, they're a little collegiate bubble. If they would be uh, take a more of a leadership role I know those decisions are very personal, but if we really want to stand up and say we empower young women and we champion young women, then let's champion with all aspects. And I'd love to see more legends of the game uh, taking an active role 
of being out and proud and being role models for these young players. A little thing about Kurt. He had to deal in a year where he had two players at the start of the season because, because they were infected with COVID-19 had to sit out the start of training camp. He had players coming and going, had to deal with that, but still manage to have a solid, a solid successful season with the sun. I have a feeling the sun are going to finally get that championship one day and they're going to get it with Kurt Miller as a head coach. Now, speaking of, now, speaking of <laughs> now, now, one thing, speaking of champions, we've had some serious trans championship star power on this podcast. When you sat down and had a talk with Caitlyn Jenner. Yes, that Caitlyn Jenner. I know she's not everybody's cup of tea, but I still think she has an important voice, not necessarily just in the trans community, but in the world of sports. And it was a joy to be able to talk with her again. In, in 2005 or 15, when I came out, <clears throat> my mission was, uh, obviously I had to come out publicly. I couldn't do it privately. Um, but I thought in doing that, can I try to make a difference? And boy, did I have a lot to learn. Um, it's a very complicated community. Um, and I had a lot to learn and, and probably did some things that I thought were right, but within the community, they didn't think it was right. But I was just trying to use my platform uh, to make things better for other people. Um, you know, through the foundation, I kind of started that way. Um, and obviously one thing that uh, is, you know, is so needed um, is financing. And I did a deal with Mac, the sale of lipsticks. We raised a couple of million dollars. I remember. To give that, yeah, to give that away. And through the my foundation, that kind of inspired me to start my own foundation. And um, I, I've worked very hard, you know, not only personally putting money in there, but also uh, have, finding some just really great people to kind of join in this crusade. And, and what I've tried to do, especially now, uh, is invest in this community. You know, I talked about, you know, the, the LA choir, trans LA choir, stuff like that. But recently I started thinking a lot and I started thinking, you know what I wanna do is I wanna invest um, in trans people, education, this next generation that's coming up. We've done a couple of scholarships grants, um, uh, one up at the University of Oregon, a trans woman who is uh, working on her PhD to help her get through to her doctorate. Um, and then recently uh, when Trump and that administration banned trans people from the military, which really ticked me off, read my piece in the Washington Post. I saw. Uh, that I, yeah, that I did about that. But because of that, there was this trans guy uh, who actually comes from a military family, uh, was in the ROTC program, was getting a scholarship uh, down at the University of Texas. And uh, uh, I helped him, you know, he lost his scholarship. 
So I thought, and here's a great opportunity to try to make a difference in somebody's lives personally and, and help them with their education. You know, in the future, you know, I want trans doctors. I want trans lawyers. You know, I want trans business people. You know, and the way you do that is educate this next generation coming up. Caitlin, you have a standing invitation to come back in the transporter room. And, you know, I understand there are people who just, they hear her name and they go, ugh. But let's face it, because of what Caitlyn Jenner did, everyone in the world knows somebody who's transgender. And you couldn't have said that a few years ago. Well, I agree with that. And I'm going to say this. And I'm one of those people who have been critical of Caitlyn Jenner in the past. I'll full admit it. But I'm going to give some credit to you, but also to another guest we have had on this show it, since this show's run began. Bethany Grace Howell, who's very close to Caitlyn Jenner. Because of that interview and also getting to know Bethany since, since she was in the transporter room last year, I have a very different perspective. I have a, I have a different perspective on Caitlyn. I would really like to sit down and talk with her, not from a, not from a an antagonistic stance, but I would dare say from a more listening and understanding stance. I got a very different understanding on on Caitlin and the dynamics surrounding that from that interview, but also getting to know Bethany. So I would like to say I am a person. I will say this: I may be critical of Caitlin. But I will also be very def- but I also will be very defensive of her as well. Like I think it's one of those things where it's in the family. We can we can bash each other at will in family, but we're not going to let people outside of the family do it. That's kind of the way I see with Caitlin and and Caitlin. This track geek would love to have you here. So how about it? Come on back. How about it? I had your poster on my wall as a little kid. I had that Wheaties box. I saw that time. I saw you in Montreal and I still look up to you with honor, even with the differences we might have. I'd like to sit down with you and hash it out, but also to be sitting cross-legged in awe and wonder thinking this was a person that I look, I looked up to and in some ways continue to do so because, because of Caitlin that opened a lot of doors. That interview a few years ago opened up a lot. And that can't be disputed. Well, Bethany Grace Howe is one of those people who I consider connectors. And I don't mean in terms of networking. I mean, she's the kind of person who reaches across divides and brings people together. Do you know who she reminds me of? She reminds me of Kamara Harrington. Kamara is also one of those connectors, a person who brings people together, people from all different backgrounds and belief systems. And she rejoined us just a few weeks ago to help us mourn our dear friend Monica Roberts, a previous guest on the Transporter Room. Kamora, we're grateful to you, not only for being our guest, but for being our connector, for helping us look at Monica in a whole new light. And Monica, this Thanksgiving is not the same without you. No, it isn't. There is room for all of us to shine in terms of, and there's plenty of work for us to do 
you know, in this trans movement that needs to be done. You know, whether we're living, you know, in the Northeast or down here in Texas, on the West Coast or in the Midwest, uh, we have plenty of work that we, you know, that must be done um, in order for us as a community to survive and thrive. Yeah, we're a family. Yeah, and of course we're going to have arguments and all that. But, you know, we shouldn't let those arguments deter us but when we need to focus on the common enemy, do that. And we know who our common enemy is. It's not each other. It's the Republicans. It's the Turfs. It's the Southern Baptist Convention. It is the, you know, say the Roman Catholic uh, conservative priest. Those are our enemies. Those are who the folks we need to be focused on. That was hard. That was hard. What are your thoughts, Kamara? What are your thoughts, Carly? Okay, there we go. I'm sorry, I had to unmute myself. That the woman knew her subject matter inside and out. And that she cared and that it was all that connected. It was like she breathed politics. It was like in her bloodstream. She knew so much and we are such at a, we are at such a loss. And the personal is always political for real. Mm -hmm. How are you doing, Carly? Hearing, hearing that voice hurts so bad, but at the same time, it's so healing to hear it. And I will tell you, Moni, Monica, we're going to miss you. But know that the fight for trans liberation, for black liberation, for human liberation that you were proudly a part of will continue. Yes. We she will said, march yeah. on. She said that she started Trans Rio in 2006 because nobody else was doing it because there was no one else doing what she was doing. So now without her, we have to pick up the mantle. Now it's our turn to carry on and yes. carry forward. And that's regardless of your tendencies. That's regardless of your political tendencies. And I've said this a lot lately because I know that I probably, Dawn, you know how much we fight and how much we argue. But we love each other. But yes, but, and also we love our people. The, the thing that made, like I said, the thing that made me an activist, and you know, the TERFs, especially yeah. in sports, mm -hmm. when they talk about a trans rights activist, you know what? You damn right I'm one. Mm -hmm. Just like Monica Roberts was. It was hard. Not just having to listen to Monica, but knowing that she wouldn't be casting a vote in what was probably her most important election since she got involved in political activism, not being able to pick a shut up fool award. <laughs> I 
have read Transgrio for 13, 14 years. And I live for the Shut Up Fool Awards. <laughs> I, I, you, you live for the Shut Up Fool Awards. And, and there are some people who just, there are some people win it so many times that you just, that you have to retire it. And she would put those people right up front and put them on blast. But after that, she'd always find a new crop because there's always a new crop. And the things that really break, bust me up about Monica the most is that, like you said, Monica didn't get a chance to ring in on this election. But I'll bet you she's looking down at us smiling at what at what we saw. And telling and what us we, to get moving and start working on the next one. Don't rest. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. She, be, she would be telling us, okay, we won. Great. Let's get to the next one. But I look at I look at the things that in part because of Monica taking the stand and speaking out that so many laws that got passed. So much so much forward momentum that was done, especially in in her home state in Texas. Uh, one of the reddest red states, yet she was able to get a lot done and able to and able to cover a lot of ground, especially defending trans youth. That I mean, that was her thing. That was her biggest thing. Her biggest thing was, I am that avenging angel, angel auntie. You do not mess with what she called our younglings. Oh, Monica was seriously defensive of trans youth, and in a way, that's what inspires me to also want to speak out for 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 trans for transgender youth because Monica did it, and Monica did it so well and did it with such faith and fury, but also with a lot of grace. And that's the other thing I think we can all take from Monica was her sense of grace. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to shift gears. Monica was a big Star Trek fan. And I'd like to ask you what you're thankful for in terms of Star Trek. And I'll tell you right now, Discovery Season 3. For me, it is the best Star Trek there's been in a very long time. And that's even with Picard, with Lower Decks, and all the shows that are in the works right now. I am loving season three. I am too. And I didn't see a discovery until they announced season three. And I had to catch back up. And I was like, what was I missing here? This is beautiful. That is a beautiful continuation. But I think all, I'm thankful for all of them. I'm thankful for discovery. I'm thankful for what an opus Picard that first season was. And I hope the second season, especially with Guinan joining, lives up to it. I enjoyed Lower Decks. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun show. I, I enjoyed Lower Decks. A very, it's something that could have been very hackneyed, and in fact, it was just very good. I was worried, but I'll be honest. But the biggest thing that I'm liking from these new shows is that the Gene Roddenberry ethos is continuing to a new future and to a new audience, and I like the fact that the creators – didn't ignore the old to build the new. That's right. They took actually, from, they looked at the old. Back reflecting, exactly. To me, that's the greatest thing. Note to anyone who does a future Star Trek film, start there. Yeah. And this week, I'll warn you, I've seen it already. If you haven't seen Picard, you're going to miss out on a connection in this week's Discovery. And that's all I'm going to say. There's a connection. And to the original series, too. Yes. <laughs> then I'm going to definitely check it out. I can't wait to watch. And it's on Thanksgiving night. So happy Thanksgiving, Carly. 
Don, happy Thanksgiving to you as well and your entire family. And to you, live long and prosper. Study as she goes. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>